All right, you found the New Species Podcast, and you thought, I'm going to listen to some of these early episodes. But did you know that this is more of a current events kind of podcast? So I suggest you actually start with some of the later episodes, and then if you really want to, come back and listen to some of these early ones. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Hi, you're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Gonzalo Girabet. Gonzalo is an invertebrate biologist working at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, where he is the curator of invertebrates and professor of organismic and evolutionary biology. He's here today to talk to us about his paper that will be published in the next issue of Invertebrate Systematics. The title of the paper is A Revised Phylogeny of the New Caledonian Endemic Genus Troglocero with a Description of Four New Species. The paper is currently available via early access. Welcome, Gonzalo. Thanks for having me, Brian. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you're very busy, and we really appreciate uh, having you on the show. I think it's kind of a real thrill to always get to talk to you. You're one of my favorite people. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, this is this is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Great, great. So first, I want to start off. These these are new species. You and I are both arachnologists, and so you know we know what when we say something like harvestman or apilionids, we have an immediate thing come into our head. Most people are like, what? So it's a group of arachnids. Can you tell me how are they different from spiders so that our listeners have a, an idea of what makes these harvestmen or apilionids different from spiders? Sure. Um, so first of all, you know, apilionids is the, the, the um, scientific term. Most people know them as harvestmen or in the U.S., uh, daddy longlegs is also one of the common names for, for this group of arachnids. And they are a very old lineage of arachnids that uh, evolved around 400 million years ago in the Devonian period or even earlier. And this is about 100 million years before the first spider fossil. So they're really, really old. And while both uh, harvestmen and spiders share many characteristics, they also differ in other aspects. For example, spiders have their first appendages shaped as a two segmented fang. Uh, that's where they inject the venom, um, while those of harvestmen are three-segmented uh, pincer-like appendages. They're more like a forceps almost. Um, you know, spiders produce venom and they have silk and harvestmen don't. Uh, but harvestmen have other characteristics like, for example, a pair of glands where they produce a liquid that uh, stinks and they use that to repel uh, possible predators. Another difference is that while spiders have the body clearly divided into two regions, uh, separated by a narrow uh, waist or pedicel, uh, harvestmen have a more rounded body without that constraint in the middle. And there are many other differences in the number of eyes, in the types of respiratory organs they have. And yeah, so that's, that's the differences. And just to clarify, the, the group of Harvestmen we're going to talk about today 
are the members of the family Troglosaronidae, which is endemic to New Caledonia. These are part of the suborder Siphophthalmi. Uh, we call them the mite harvestmen because they sort of look like mites. They don't look very much like the more typical harvestmen or daddy longlegs. Yeah, so it's interesting you say that. So when you're given the description, I remember growing up in, in the central part of the United States and uh, you'd pick these things up and you would get that slight odor that would come from them if you really messed around with them. So that's those glands you're talking about. And my grandmother always described them as a marble with legs. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. they just had that single body segment and then you'd have these legs coming out from them. Uh, it's interesting you brought up the the kind of the family and everything that you're in. So this particular group or, or, or branch on the family tree of life is only found in New Caledonia, you said, right? Yeah, the genus and the family are endemic to New Caledonia. They're only found there, nowhere else in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I was going to ask you uh, the meaning. So normally when we see troglo in, in, a, in a genus name, that indicates something that comes from a cave, generally speaking. Is there anything to that with these particular ones? What what habitat are you finding these things in throughout the island? Because there's several species of them. You described four new species, but there's there's other species as well. What's their typical habitat, or is it really varied? Yeah, um, the, these ones in New Caledonia, they typically live in humid forests. And the only reason why they have that uh, prefix, troglo, is because the first specimens were found in the mouth of a cave in New Caledonia. They are not adapted to cave life. Um, that was a little bit confusing in that sense, but just because they were found near the cave, they called them troglo. And then Syro is a very common uh, name for the members of that suborder Siphophthalmi. But um, but yeah, no, they're in, in forests, uh, humid forests, um, some of them really high up in the mountains, so we had to do long climbs of about five to seven hours to get to the places where where we could find them. Yeah, and your your paper, which I'll I'll put a link to in the show notes, uh, you actually have a map on there, and and you talk a little bit about the habitats that they're found in, and and they're pretty much, it, it, New New Caledonia kind of goes you know at a at an angle from about, uh, say like from northwest to southeast. It's this long cigar shaped island, yeah. and there's they seem to be pretty well spread all the way. It looks like from the coast right up to the tops of mountains. Is that about is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and, and I don't know. They, they they look like they're really fascinating. You also have some really nice pictures in the in the in there as well. Some nice color pictures of them. And you're right when you say that they're mite like. Uh, that that's really accurate. My first thought was, that's an apilionid that's kind mm. of gotten a flattened body and looks more like a mite, like one of those little predatory mites. Yeah, and, and by the way, just so people are aware out there, ticks and mites are in the same group. So when you think about a tick, you'd be getting that. That's this is. They didn't look as shiny as that. They had kind of like little roughness if you look at the picture of them. But they, that, that's what it struck me as. I was like, well, that, that's just a long-legged tick. Yeah, you're, you're right. And in fact, many professional arachnologists uh, who know daddy longlegs, they often don't think these animals are daddy longlegs. And, and many of the people who collect them are actually people who work on mites more than, than people who worked on, on opilionis. Um Yeah. Yeah, and so how how big are these then? Like the body size. So I understand the and, and actually these had really short legs too. It looked like too, but just like the body, if you went from the front to the back, about how long would that be? Yeah, these ones that we described from the four species, they're all tiny. The longest one, the largest one, is two point two 
millimeters in length, which is not even a tenth of an inch. So they're really small, and this is why they're often overlooked wow. by collectors. Yeah, they're really, really small. Yeah, that's so okay. So my instinct of saying that looks like a mite is actually not too far off. Like if I saw that out in the forest and I didn't know what I was looking at, I I would just make the assumption that's a mite. Yeah, that's really incredible. Yeah. Uh, so what was the small? You said the the largest one was two point two millimeters. What was the smallest? I think it was about one point five. At, at maturity, we're we're gonna go with fully fully grown ones. These are yeah. This is the size of the of the full adults, which are the ones that we use for describing. So yeah, they go from about one point three one point five millimeters. Some of the smaller species in New Caledonia. There's other species in other places that are even smaller, around one millimeter for an adult uh, specimen. Um, wow, that's incredible. Like, I, I just don't think of harvestmen be, being, this is my North American bias, <laughs> right? I don't think of them being those, that, that tiny little thing like that. You know, normally, like I said, my, as my grandmother said, they're a marble with legs. And I, I'm thinking of the Flangio epilioines or, or one of those, you know, that's much larger. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. And that means that, the, you know, obviously the legs, they look like little, almost like little tank-like things. They have really stocky legs instead of those long, fine legs you normally find on these things, right? Exactly. We call them little tanks, actually, kind of in a, in a <laughs> jokey way. Um, yeah. And they are, Brian, but there are a few species of uh, the genus Syro, actually, in North America. But again, it's very few people have looked at them, very few people have studied them. We described a few years ago a bunch of new species from, from the U.S., actually, also. Mostly in the West Coast, but they are... Uh, a couple in Florida. There's another one that makes it all the way up to uh, Virginia, Maryland. So there's a few species in, in the U.S., very few compared to New Caledonia, where you have so many species in such a small island. If we talk a little bit more specifically about this paper, uh, about 11 years ago, you and one of your co-authors, uh, Prashant Sharma, had postulated that there were some new species there because of some collections you had done um, at that time. But you only had some juveniles and females. Why wasn't juvenile? Why weren't juveniles and females enough to say that these are new species? What did it take for these things to for you to go and say yes, these are new species? Why can't we just use those couple of specimens? Yeah, um, I mean, this is you're right. About uh, 11 years ago, we published the last paper revising the group with Prashant Sharma. At the time, he was uh, a grad student in my lab. He's now a, an assistant professor, as you know. Um, and in fact, the work on Troglosaro was done in my lab when he was an undergrad. Uh, and at the time, we described another seven uh, new species. We revised the group, but we had some of these localities with just a few specimens, immatures or um, females. And, and as you know, for many groups of arthropods, uh, juveniles are not enough sometimes to display all the characters that allow us to distinguish species. And in the case of the mite harvestmen, many of the characters that allow us to distinguish them are uh, sexually derived characters only found in the males. So, so yeah, we sort of knew that, that there were uh, new populations of probable new species in these uh, localities, but we couldn't do a formal description. Uh, and this is why we went back there to look for some of those, find the males, find more specimens so we could prepare some for the electron microscope, uh, some for sequencing, and that way we could get all the data to really describe them properly. Okay, so that, that that's getting to the heart of it here. So so what does it take to say that you have a new species of one of these? A lot of people out there, they always, they, 
a lot of our listeners out there, I think, are probably thinking like it's unusual. I know when I talk to my students, and you probably have the same experience, when you say that, oh, yeah, I've described new species, and they're always amazed by that. And you're like, actually, it's not all that terribly novel. They're pretty easy to find if you go and look in the right place. But it's not easy to describe them because it takes a lot of work. What does it take to say that, yeah, this is a new species of Troglocera versus this species over here that we already know about? What what are, what are the different components that are going to convince you as the researcher and Prashant and Caitlin Baker, who's your other co-author, that these are new species? Um, yeah, there uh, nowadays many sources of evidence. And, and one that is pretty obvious to, to many people is if we sequence these things, uh, we sequence the DNA of some of these animals, we plot them in a phylogenetic tree, and we might see that they come up in, in different places, not related, not closely related to other individuals that have names. But, but it, it really takes uh, to put them under uh, a high power microscope, like an electron microscope, and, and pay attention to several of the details that have to do with, um, for example, the, the the aspects, the different aspects of the cuticle of the animal, uh, whether they have certain pores from secretory glands on the ventral side, uh, and also we compare the um, genitalia of the males. These animals have a structure that we call spermatopositor because they they deposit uh, packages of sperm um, with these structures. It's not really a, a penis because they don't have uh, an internal fertilization. What they do is they deposit this you know, package of sperm into the female. Uh, so we also compare those structures which tend to have differences between uh, the different species. And that's why we needed the adult males to make those comparisons. Right. So you're, so you're looking at morphology, which is the, the shape and, and various character structures of it. And some of it, because these are so tiny, you need to use like SEM or scanning electron microscopy for some of those. You need to use powerful microscopes to do that. And then you're also using DNA to back that up. And, and I'm sure probably uh, a little bit of biogeography comes into play on this too, right? Like these things are found there, they're related. And if we look at them, all of the troglocera come off together as a tree and now there's a little group of them on that tree of life that bunch together that don't have a name, but they're clearly different from the others. And now when we look at the morphology, hey, I think we got something new. Is that about right? Exactly. That's that's what it is. And, and especially with the um, troglosyro, as you described, there's a lot of dots in that map. But if you actually look at it very carefully, almost every dot is a different species. Those dots might be uh, as close as 10 miles apart, but they're very loyal to their habitat, to very specific areas. Also, New Caledonia is very rugged. There's a lot of little mountains and a lot of different you know, valleys. So you just move to the next one. And if you find Cyphophthalmi, you tend to find a new species. So, so yeah, we're, we're combining some of the geographic localities with some of the DNA work and then comparing the morphology. We often can take them up, tell them apart, combining all those things. Um, even in cases where the morphology is very similar, one of the species we describe here is called Troglosyro pseudo-jubertii, because in, in the work we did 11 years ago, we thought it was related to these other species from New Caledonia called Troglosyro jubertii, but we could not tell them apart with morphology. Uh, and now that we've combined this with, uh, with a lot of the genetic data, 
we can tell them apart. But they're very, very similar in that case. Yeah, and the figure you re- that we both referred to here is actually figure two in your paper where you have the map on it. And, and it, I was going to ask you about that. I noticed that you have uh, some very distinct species on here, but then you have several of them on here where you denote like uh, Troglocera sp tohuo, yeah. if I said that correctly, or uh, cf platnikai. So it's near platnikai, but it's clearly not the same. So you, you obviously have more work to do there. It must be terrible to have to think about going back to New Caledonia to spend time playing in the forest looking for harvestmen. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and the reason one is SP Tohuo is that because we're now stuck in, you know, in the same place we were 11 years ago, we only have a juvenile from that locality. It's a very far apart locality from everything else. We actually even have some sequence data. We know that is a different species. And, and in that case, we haven't been able to describe it again because we don't have enough material. But one of the nice things now is that using iNaturalist, I've contacted uh, a very nice photographer from New Caledonia who's been photographing a lot of these my harvestmen. And, you know, I've sent him the paper. Uh, he's seen my photos. He's sending, sending me his photos. And he's now going to be able to go to some of these localities where we suspect there are new species to look for them. Oh, that's wonderful. That sounds really great, actually, to be able to include some some other people into this and, and get get a, a broader involvement by a larger group of people. To, to re- So is, is he from New Caledonia then? Yeah, he's from New Caledonia. He's not a professional biologist, but he's really good nature photographer. So he's going to help us with some of this research, which is really good to get more involvement from the uh you know, from the community interested in biodiversity, even if they're not professionals, they can contribute to this research nowadays. Yeah, citizen science is really great. I mean, that's the, the iNaturalist has opened up a lot of doors on that. We could we could have a whole podcast just about the usefulness of iNaturalist. I uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll probably try to stick here to New Caledonia at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about a lot of the, the questions I had for you, but one of the things I'm always interested in, well, well, let's start with this one first. I know one of your co-authors, Prashant Sharma, uh, you named one of the species, you and Caitlin Baker, your other co-author, named one of the species after him as Troglocera sharma I. How did the other three get their names? You described the etymology in the paper. Can you, can you give us a little rundown of, of how you picked the names? Because I think that's one of the things that when it comes to naming new species, people always ask me that, like, how, how did you pick the new name? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah. so, so tell us. Tell us how you did it. Okay, so uh, first of all, this is a little bit unusual that a species is named after one of the authors of that paper, right? But as you mentioned... Yeah, he, you, you, did the, you did the proper trick, though. Exactly. You did the proper trick for that one. Yeah, so he... Prashan is a co-author on the general paper. He's not an author on that species. And the reason why we name it after him in this case is because when Kaylan and I were in the field in 2018, we, find it, we found this new species and we started calling it Charmai because we wanted to name it after Prashan for his contribution to the troglocyro fauna of New Caledonia. At the time, we were going to do a paper without Prashan, but later on, because we ended up combining some of his unpublished data from when he was an undergrad and brought him back into the paper, we had to make this compromise that some of the species will only be described by Kalen and me and some of the others that were based on, on Prashant's data, the three of us will be co-authors. And, and that brings me to how you name species, right? So one, that's the typical way of naming a species after a colleague, normally after a scientist who has contributed to the knowledge of that group of organisms. 
but uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes better to name species using some of the characteristics of those uh, species. Uh, that you find a Latin way to express that characteristic because then it adds some descriptive uh, notions into the name of the species. It's also pretty common to name a species after the place where they come from. So for example, Troglosyro doni in our paper is named after the plateau de doni, which is one of the, is the locality where we find it. Or Troglosyro pan is named after another locality, which is called Pic du Pan in, in French. The, the, you know, uh, this refers to the pine trees. Um, so, so that's how we chose the names in these, in these cases after someone or after their localities or this other one, Pseudo-Jubertii, because we had mistaken that species previously with Jubertii. That's how we do that. Excellent. Yeah, that, and, and I think you covered pretty much every major base for how we name these things, actually, in that within your four species. You know, you, you, you do an honorary to somebody, uh, it comes after a locality, or because it's been confused with something, or if it has some really prominent feature, you Latinize the way to, to say that, yeah. So and 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 that's what I often tell my students. Uh, for example, the I, with one of your former colleagues there at Harvard, uh, Herb Levy and I had described a species that I found out here in South Dakota uh, by the capital area, and the the capital looks like it's spelled pronounced Pierre, but it's pronounced Pier, and so we called it Theridion, which would be the genus Pier, and that would be the specific epithet, and that's again named after exactly where we where we found it. I have a, I just one other question here for you that I think uh, most people would would be wondering about this. You were talking about having to use scanning electron microscopy to look at these one and two millimeter harvestmen, right? And they're found in a in some distant forest, literally on the other side of the planet from where you and I are. Why why should people know about these? What is it that we can learn from these things or, or from our knowledge of going out and finding them? Why, why is it important that we know about these little tiny harvestmen on the other side of the planet? Yeah, that, that is always the, the trick question, right, Brian? I mean, I can see how, you know, most people might find it difficult to relate to re these really small cryptic arachnids, uh, you know, and they might prefer to go after, let's say, the giant geckos of New Caledonia, right? And there's that that aspect of, of the nature that you can see and you can touch that that brings, you know, brings people closer to, to those aspects. But, but the reality is that, you know, these tiny species for some of their characteristics, like the one that they don't move around very much, uh, have helped us understand many things about the evolution of the New Caledonian biota. Uh, we have used them prominently in, in a debate about, uh, you know, how the groups uh, evolved there, uh, and the debate about what happened to New Caledonia when it was submerged uh, under, you know, two kilometers of, of seawater. And, and what happened to the fauna that was there. So, so these animals have featured permanently because they've diversified in that island, they're endemic to the island. So they really have helped us understand this, this long-term history of New Caledonia, uh, steered the debate about what happened during the submer submersion um, episode during the Eocene. So using this fauna to understand broader biological and geological processes is what we do 
when we study the biogeography of these small organisms. And actually, it reminds me, you know, you, you said you managed to listen to that first podcast I did where we talked to Mark, Dr. Mark Schertz, and he was working on um, microhylid uh, frogs, right? And they're only like a, a centimeter or so long. And when I asked him that, he, he brought up an interesting point. First, he, used to, he normally works on things in Madagascar, and he mentioned on islands you normally get diminuization, right? So things get smaller on islands. Is that something common you find in the harvestmen? The ones that are on islands tend to be a little smaller than what you would typically find elsewhere. Do you see that diminuization? Uh, not, not in in the harvestmen. No. Uh, in fact, this is not an uncommon size for the members of this entire suborder of harvestmen. Um, some of them get larger in tropical places. Um, even in some, the largest one I've collected was in in Java, and that's about seven millimeters, so that's you know a quarter of an inch, which is much larger than, less than a tenth of an inch, obviously. Uh, so no, it's, it's not very common. Normally those, those effects of miniaturization tend to be with uh, in mammals, uh, while things like yeah. birds and things like that tend to get larger in islands also. So there's some of those phenomena. Many flying animals become flyless, uh, but there's no trend in, in these small arachnids, uh, you know, to them, that's a continent, right? It's so large that it doesn't really make a difference. Sure. And I think that that, that tracks across, like if you look at, at most arthropods, um, terrestrial arthropods, what you said is exactly true. There doesn't seem to be a, a real size that kind of comes along with it. And that, uh, the last question I wanted to ask you here is, is, is there anything that we can learn from these that we can apply elsewhere? Uh, so, for example, um, these things live in such a tiny, you know, they're so tiny and they live in such a large world. Is there anything that we can take from our knowledge of these things? I don't know, the way that they view the world, uh, the way that they hunt and that sort of thing that we can actually apply to the bigger picture that maybe humans might be able to, to take advantage of with like biomimicry of some sort. Yeah, that, that is a hard one uh, to respond for the reason that we know very little about their biology. We're beginning to know the numbers of species, uh, we're beginning to learn their anatomy, but very few people have spent any time looking at their behaviors. We don't really know what they eat. Uh, we don't really know how many years they live. These, these animals seem to live. There is, an, a, there is a species from Europe that was kept in captivity for up to seven or eight years. We assume that's the same for the ones in New Caledonia, but really no one has studied their biology and ecology. So there's very little we can extrapolate in that way. Uh, but for biomechanics, they have a really solid body with really uh, powerful articulations that allow them to dig into the soil and in between the leaf litter. Uh, so maybe for some robotics, that could be good examples. But that's about it. And actually, I think no. Actually, I think your answer was really good because that that underscores why we need to go look for these things. We don't know what we could learn from them. We don't know what benefits these organisms may provide to us. They may seem insignificant, and and who knows? Maybe we won't get a whole lot from it, other than maybe like I like your suggestion of the robotics. I actually, think that's really really a fascinating. I hadn't thought about that, but we need to know more about all of these different organisms before we lose them. Because there's, there's so many species going extinct, and we don't know what they have yet to teach us. And so the more that we can invest in learning this, this kind of fundamental science of just what organisms do we find where and how does their biology work, I think that provides us many more opportunities for advancement in science. 
Yes, it's I, just my opinion, but I, I think that's that's an important thing to know. Yes, I, I agree. And also, I mean, if we take into account that these body plan, very similar ones, you know, have been living in our planet for over 300 million years, uh, that tells us that maybe we can learn something about that body plan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you know, if it's worked for that long, obviously they're doing something right. And if we can figure out what it is, maybe we could take advantage and use that as well. Well, Gonzalo, I sincerely appreciate you taking your time. I know that you're extremely busy, and I I cannot express enough how appreciative I am that you would take the time out to come on this podcast and let me harass you for a little while with some questions about stuff. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and I really, really look forward to the next time that we get to talk, hopefully in Uruguay, at the next international meeting. Yeah, I hope so, and, and thank you very much also to you for having me and for spending the time making this podcast to make more and more people interested in science and in species descriptions. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about these things. Excellent. Thank you. Bye. For more information about Dr. Jirabet, you can follow him on Twitter, at GGirabet, that's at G-G-I-R-I-B-E-T, or you can visit his website, oeb.harvard.edu forward slash people forward slash Gonzalo dash Jirabet, or you can Google and find out more about him on Wikipedia. <coughs> Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.